Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Dear friends, hope has been defined as a positive expectation regarding the future. And conversely, hopelessness has been defined as negative expectation regarding the future. And we experience hopelessness when there's a gap between our expectations on the one hand and our experience on the other. We experience hopelessness when our reality falls short of our expectations. Now, in our Gospel reading for this morning, two men journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. This is Easter day, the afternoon of the first Easter. And not only are these two men saddened by the events of Holy Week just past, but they're also walking without hope. And I direct your attention to our sermon outline, page 11 in your worship bulletin. Roman number one, this journey from Jerusalem is a journey of hopelessness. But in the midst of the disciples' hopelessness, Jesus arrives. He is present. And that's letter A. The shepherd seeks. Now their eyes are held back from recognizing him, but he's there. Not visible to them, but he's present. And he's doing what he's always done. He's teaching, and he's teaching by asking questions. And it reminds me of what our Lord did in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were hiding, they heard him walking in the garden. And what does he do? He asks, Adam, where are you? This is how our Lord teaches. If he were here this morning, he would probably be asking us questions about ourselves and about the God in whom we trust. Number one, the disciples know the facts of the gospel. They give a very good gospel proclamation in answer to Jesus' question, what things are you talking about? And they respond, well, those things about Jesus, a prophet, and yes, he is a prophet, he's, he's more than a prophet, you and I know that, but he's also a prophet mighty in word and deed before the people. But our leaders handed him over 
to be crucified. And now it's the third day, and the women went to the tomb, some of our women, and they said the tomb was empty, and that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. You see, that is a point-by-point -point proclamation of the gospel. And yet, they don't believe in the Christ of that message, the Christ of that gospel. Rather, even though they know the facts of the gospel, number one, they do not yet know Jesus. They're blind to his true identity as the crucified and risen Savior. That's what their eyes being held back symbolizes to us. They don't yet know him in that way. Rather, they know him, well, they knew him as a conquering king. They knew him. They expected him to be a Messiah who would restore the greatness of Israel and restore the glory of the past. This was their expectation. But when they saw him rejected by their own leaders and crucified, they rejected him as well. Lowercase a, they see the cross as unworthy of God. They said Jesus was crucified, but we had hoped that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. And, and ironically, the very means by which he will redeem not only Israel, but all humanity, is his crucifixion and resurrection. Lowercase b, they do not yet know the God that God reveals himself through suffering. That's, that's foreign to them. They, they associate weakness and suffering with the absence of God. And yet, that same weakness and suffering is the very means through which God acts to save humanity. So, how will Jesus restore their hope in him, the Messiah that he truly is, the one crucified for our sins and raised for our justification, how will he restore that hope in him? How will he restore their hope in the future? Well, it's not through miracles. It will not be through acts of power. It will be by directing them back to their own scriptures that they might see him there. Number two, Jesus teaches the first Christians to relearn the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible as prophecy concerning himself. You see, the reason they do not yet know Jesus is they do not yet know their own scriptures. Christ cannot be understood apart from the Jewish scriptures, nor can the Jewish scriptures be understood apart from Jesus Christ. 
lowercase a. The cross is what God does to us all. It's what he does to us all. At the cross of our Lord, the world was declared righteous because the guilt of us all was laid upon the righteous one, Jesus. But the cross is not just something that happened at Calvary. The cross is something that happens to all of us who follow Jesus. He calls us to bear our own cross. And that means that we are crucified with him. It means that we die to ourselves, to our own desires. We say no to self in order that we might say yes to God. And so that we might serve others around us in the same way that our Lord Jesus serves us. Lowercase b. This is the pattern throughout Scripture and throughout the Old Testament. Suffering first, then glory. It's not glory apart from suffering. It's suffering first and then glory. And throughout the ages, all of God's people endured severe tests by God. Noah, Abraham, Joseph, the son of Jacob, Moses, David, Daniel, and, and, and all of the prophets. Israel suffered bondage in Egypt before the Lord delivered them and gave them a status as a nation, a most favored nation. The prophet Ezekiel sees the nation destroyed and dead, symbolized as a valley of dry bones. The kingdom is over, but God speaks life into those bones. They become a multitude, a living multitude, symbolizing the exiles returning to the land and reforming the nation once again. And why is it that so many godly women in the scriptures were barren? Sarah was barren. Her womb was dead as far as the ability to bear children was concerned. And the same was true of Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah and Elizabeth. Why? to show us that life comes about by God's will and his discretion, not our own, and to teach us that God is the one who brings life out of what was dead. The Apostle Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He quotes Genesis 2 in Ephesians chapter 5. But it's for this purpose. He says, I speak to you a mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
You see, this is how our Lord Jesus taught the first Christians to interpret the Hebrew Scriptures. They testify of Him. So that when we read the institution of marriage in Genesis, we're to think, first and foremost, of the love that God has for the world, the love that Jesus has for His bride, the church. And even Adam himself, according to Paul, prefigures Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, In Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. You see what he's saying? Adam is sort of a negative of Jesus, the picture. Just as a photograph has a negative... God deals with us all through Adam in terms of death. But God deals with us all through Jesus in terms of life. You see, even Adam himself, in his own way, is an odd picture of Jesus. The Apostle Peter quotes the Old Testament, Psalm 16. David writes, you will not abandon my soul to the grave, nor will you allow my, your Holy One to see corruption. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaches and says, that refers to Christ. David did not ascend to heaven. His tomb is with us to this day. No, it speaks of Christ and the glory of his resurrection. In Psalm 110, Peter quotes the psalmist, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Peter says, That refers to the ascension of our Lord and his enthronement in heaven on Ascension Day. He quotes Psalm 118 as well. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter quotes that to tell the people that that speaks of Christ's rejection by their leaders, his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection, you see. And all of these figures from the Hebrew Bible, the tabernacle, the temple, they prefigure Jesus, the true temple of God. The sacrifices, they all prefigure Christ the one true sacrifice for sins. This is how our Lord taught the first Christians to read the scriptures, to see himself on every page, to read them in light of himself. And this is how Christ testifies to us. It's, it's not by his appearing to everyone so that we might grudgingly have faith in him. No, rather, he points us to the scriptures which testify of him down through the ages. Letter B. The shepherd finds. He finds them. These two men who are lost, he finds them. Number one, they recognize or they re-know him. They're knowing him now in the true way 
in the meal, in the breaking of the bread. And they will recognize him only in the meal. It's not while they're walking along. That Jesus they don't recognize. But God gives them recognition at that moment when he breaks the bread and he's taken from their sight. That is to say, from now on, they will know him in the breaking of the bread. And that's how we will know him as well. The one crucified and risen for us. The words come first. Number two, they remember his words. That discussion on the road when he opened the scriptures to them. And then the words prepare them for the meal and that moment of revelation and recognition. This is how he will be present for his own in the ages to come. Until his return, this is how he will be recognized. Roman numeral two, the journey to Jerusalem, therefore, is one of hopefulness, not hopelessness. That's in the past. You see, earlier, these two men journeyed away from the other disciples who remained in Jerusalem. And that's really what hopelessness does. Hopelessness isolates us from one another. Hopefulness, on the other hand, draws us together because this hope of Christ is a hope that we have in common. It is a hope that we share and it brings us back together once again. Letter A, the shepherd gathers the flock. This is how he gathers. It's through the word spoken on the road. It's through the breaking of the bread. And these things symbolize what we've called today the liturgy of the church. This is quite evidently word and sacrament. Now we don't know if the meal at Emmaus was the Lord's Supper or not. But we know that through that meal, he is pointing us to the supper that he has left for us. So this is how the shepherd gathers his own. It's through the word. It's through the table. Letter B, the shepherd lives. He lives not only in glory in heaven, but he lives among us today, according to his words and through his presence in the Holy Supper. And let her see, the shepherd restores hope. From now on, he will be with them, not in works of power or dreams and visions, so he can do that if he wishes, but he will definitely be with them in his word and in his meal. You see, the Lord's Supper, as St. Paul writes, is a proclamation of his death. It is proclaiming his death for the forgiveness of our sins and his resurrection for our justification. It's in the service of the word and sacrament that Jesus reminds us of who he really is, the crucified and risen Savior for us all. You know, I've said before, and I'm quoting again from uh, the reformer John Calvin, who said that the human heart is an idle factory. That is to say, 
we're always tempted to manufacture our own personal Jesus who will give credence to our desires and, and who will validate whatever we want to do. And that's why returning to his words and returning to his meal is so important because it is in these things that he's left behind for us that we relearn, we re-know him as he is, and we relearn what he's about and what he has come to do for us all. We do not follow a Jesus of our imagination. We don't place our hope in a Savior who would spare us from suffering. We don't trust in any Jesus who promises to fulfill our own desires. No, that Jesus is a figment of our imagination. That Jesus does not exist. And if your hope is in that Jesus, well, I want to tell you, you are without hope. The only hope there is, is in the Jesus of the scriptures. The only Jesus there is, is the one who was nailed on the cross for your sins. And it's that Jesus who calls us to follow him and to bear our own crosses, to suffer, as all Christians do, by saying no to ourselves, by dying to ourselves daily, in order that we might say yes to him, and in order that we might serve one another, our spouses, our children, our parents, our fellow members, in the same way that he serves us. That's the true Jesus. That's the Jesus we need to re-know and relearn every week in word and sacrament. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.